This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. Al Kajoshi is the internationally best-selling author of the Jaipur Trilogy. The book that completes the series, The Perfumist of Paris, was published earlier this year. It's set in the 1970s, amid the highly competitive Parisian perfume industry. And the story follows Radha, a young Indian woman with a painful secret, who's determined to forge her own career in a world dominated by men. The novel richly evokes both a past era and timeless fragrances, many of which are blended using essential oils, or attars, sourced from India. With fans around the world and a Netflix series of her first novel, The Henna Artist, in production, Alka is proof positive that there is no upper age limit to achieving our dreams. She only started writing after she retired, and was in her mid-sixties when The Henna Artist was published. Before we meet Alka, Here's a clip of Smitha Mathan narrating The Perfumist of Paris. Imagine running amid a field of lavender bushes with your friends, playing hide-and-seek between rows of jasmine vines. Antoine closed his eyes. Your friend tickles your nose with a blade of grass, and just from its scent... You know it's from the farm down the hill, not the one up the rise. Imagine plucking a vine-ripened tomato from your mother's garden just to inhale its sharp aroma. He sighed. That's what growing up in class was like. I didn't have to imagine. The delicate fragrance of the henna flower greeted me on my way to the village river bank where I washed clothes. My mouth watered at the ripe melon scent of mangoes that Prame feasted on as his bulls ground wheat and corn into flour. And the moment before I offered my finest possession, the people leaf painting of Radha and Krishna that Munshiji had made for me to Lord Ganesh, I breathed deeply of the sandalwood incense as I folded my hands to pray for good luck. Like Antoine, my memories were rich with scent. And so were my secrets. Al Kajoshi, welcome to My Life in Books. Thank you so much for having me. As I said in the introduction, this is the third book in the series, but it's standalone. You don't need to have read the other two books in the trilogy to understand it. It's very much Radha's story. Radha is the younger sister of the protagonist of the first two books, The Henna Artist. Could you introduce her to us, please? At 13 years of age, when uh, she first came into Lakshmi, her sister's life, she was very rebellious. Uh, she had been raising herself in the village because her parents had checked out, and then they died, and she needed to find a way to survive. So she was looking for her sister. Well, Lakshmi, you know, had this idea that uh, she needed more coaching, she needed mothering, and that's not what Radha needed. So uh, she got into trouble. She got into trouble with a boy. 
And uh, now at the age of 32, she is living in Paris. She has grown up. She has a French husband. Uh, she has a responsible life as a mother and wife. She has two young girls. But she also has a profession that she has found she's very passionate about, and that is perfumery. She works in a perfume lab, and she would love to become a master perfumer, which is sort of the ultimate for every uh, perfume person to try to reach. So that is where she is right now, and she's facing some kind of conflicts at home because uh, she is spending more and more time at work, and her husband is old school. He would like her to spend more time at home. So there are a lot of issues there of domestic equality. And uh, then, of course, she has a secret she's been hiding all of these years, the baby that she gave birth to back when she was 13 years old. And she's very much tried to bury that secret. It hurts her, but she she... Like her sister, Luxmi, she buries herself in her work. She She's an artist and she can find solace there. And actually, she learnt her perfume trade by helping her sister mix essential oils into the henna when she was living with her in the first two books. Absolutely. Uh, she was so talented at mixing the different ingredients that were necessary uh, back in the village where she was born, she used to mix the paints for an old man who painted on these uh, people leaf skeletons. I'm sure you've seen those very miniature drawings on these large leaves. Uh, and so it was very natural for her to start uh, mixing uh, Lakshmi's henna. And because of that, she has some kind of natural affinity toward chemistry, the way that ingredients are going to interact with one another. And so she enters the world of perfumery, which also requires a great deal of knowledge about perfumery. As I found out after talking to master perfumers, you know, I used to think that the way perfume was made was you're just sitting there with a couple of bottles of really nice scents, and then you kind of start blending them together. Well, it turns out that master perfumers hold about 3,000 scents in their memory, right? Scent is memory. And so they hold all of those. And the way that they design their formulas is they reach into their brain and they go, okay, I think I need 0.3 ounces of that. I need 0.02 grams of this. And that's how they develop the formula. Then they send it to the lab. And then a lab assistant like Radha actually puts it together. Uh, so yeah, there was a lot of chemistry involved in Radha's life. And that is sort of where she is going uh, with her career. Now, you know, um, I do have to tell you that drawing from Lakshmi and Radha's life, or rather, they draw from my life, I am far more comfortable working than I am in um, figuring out what I really am feeling or what I am doing in my life. <laughs> so I tend to uh, much more bury myself in my work the way those two women do. This is very, very much a book, as you say, about fragrances and the sense of smell. And I certainly learned a huge amount. And actually, what I what I was very struck by was the quote from Helen Keller that you used. You can travel to a million different places through smell. And, and rather as the perfumists build up their own catalogue of sense. 
we build up our own library of scents that remind us of times and occurrences in our own lives. I love that. I have never thought about it quite that way before, but you're absolutely right. Each of us is developing that memory that is evoked by scent. Uh, and any time that we smell something like, you know, bread baking or uh, we smell the petrol of the car that our father used to drive, these are the kinds of scents that we do catalog. And uh, any time that those scents crop up, we are in that memory, in that time period with those people. You're absolutely right. One of the things that I, I learned from this book was how different scents are used and have been used for hundreds of years to elicit different reactions in the people who wear them and in the people who are encountering those who wear them. There are specific scents that conjure images and reactions in us all. Yes. For example, sandalwood is a very calming um, oil. And a lot of people use it for spiritual purposes uh, when they are going to church, uh, you know, in, in a temple, that kind of thing. Um, and then, of course, there are the scents uh, that are activating your brain, that are, you know, bringing a lot of energy into your life. And those could be something like cinnamon. And then, of course, there are scents that are... Uh, mitigating some bad things in your life, and that could be something like a clove. <laughs> so, yes, every scent has a an emotional reaction, and uh, it'll take you back to some point in your life where uh, you had that same reaction. You're sort of duplicating those reactions every time you smell a certain fragrance. And of course, although Paris is considered the perfume capital of the world, so many of these ingredients used to make these essential oils are sourced from India. Yes, and that was an amazing finding that I had in my research. I didn't even know this before I started doing the research for the perfumist of Paris. I was completely um, of the idea that France is the place where all perfume basically was invented and uh, is developed still. Uh, and then I realized in my research that many of the ingredients like sandalwood, like vetiver, um, cinnamon and clove and cardamom, damask rose and jasmine, mm -hmm. those are all coming from the Indian subcontinent or the environs there because those are the climates that grow those kinds of uh, scents. And so the European traders uh, centuries ago would come down through the spice route, would come into Asia, and they would bring these ingredients back to be sold to people like the fragrance experts. And then those people would develop their scents out of them. Eventually, the Europeans realized that it was very expensive for uh, traders to be selling them these goods. So they, re they thought, okay, why don't we try to grow them in a place like Grasse in the southeastern part of France, uh, because the climate was similar to what was happening in Asia. So then they started growing their own lavender, their own jasmine, their own roses. And to this day, they still do that. Uh, but yes, the origin of all of that uh, fragrance came from Asia. 
Like I remember, you know, scents from India when I was growing up there that were, uh, you know, harvested for hundreds, thousands of years. You go into any temple in India and you will smell all of those fragrances because different people have lit their various incense that they prefer. And during the course of the book, Radha returns to India to look for a very specific missing ingredient for the perfume that she is trying to create. And through that, we learn a fascinating amount of the ancient chemistry involved in producing attars, the, these essential oils, and also how they are blended with other attars to produce a rounded perfume that has a base note, something heavy and lasting, maybe like vetiver or sandalwood, a, a heart note which, which lies at the centre of the, the fragrance, and then a lighter top note which, which just draws us in uh, but, but doesn't really last for very long. And um, it actually made me think this is very much like the creative process for writing, that we have various different layers in writing, some of which are specific to the plot of the book, and some of which are more universal. And, and when a book is successful, it blends those notes together. Yes, once again, I think that is uh, an astute analogy. In writing, we do have uh, the basics of the story that we lay down, uh, which I think are the base notes that you are referring to. And then mm. there's the heart of the story. Those are the emotions of the characters. Those are the ways in which they interact, the way they betray one another, the way they love one another, the way they trust one another. Um, and then, of course, there are the uh, top notes, which I think are more uh, of the ways that we are blending all of that together. So um, I think the top notes might be more like uh, ticks that we all have in our writing, uh, trying to get rid of those. Those might be grammar. Those might be uh, issues of continuity, uh, issues of tone uh, throughout the book. So um, that's kind of how my process works, is I do the base, and then I do the heart, and then I go through the document again and again and again so that uh, I can get it as smooth as possible. And that really comes from the top notes. Yes, and certainly one of those heart notes that runs through the book is your trademark flair for intrigue. Rada has been given the commission to create a new scent and somebody within the perfume lab she works at it is trying to sabotage her. So not only do we have the, the mystery of who has commissioned her to come up with this scent, but it's also who is trying to push her off course. Yes. Uh, I needed for Radha to have some kind of obstacle. There is usually an antagonist, and for Radha, this is one of her antagonists, uh, somebody at work who is trying to sabotage her. She is uh, very gifted naturally because I think anybody who grows up in South Asia has grown up with so many scents. From the moment they are born, they <laughs> are uh, smelling Indian food. They're smelling those curries. They are smelling their mother's uh, jasmine in her hair. They're smelling 
uh, you know, the environment of all of these uh, cows running all across the street and the little monkeys and so on. Um, and so it is uh, an environment for South Asians that is uh, inundated with fragrance. Mm-hmm. Um, Radha is very gifted, and I think her antagonist realizes that, and he would like to become a master perfumer before Radha would. So yes, mm-hmm. he's making it very difficult for her. And I think that she, in her home life, also has an antagonist. I think as we all, we all have these obstacles in our lives that are keeping us from reaching the goal uh, that we think we want to attain. Um, yeah, I... <laughs> Uh, you know, I think that antagonists make writing so much fun because you're always trying to figure out, okay, who's going to get her next? You know, who's going to get in the way of what she wants to do? And yes, this ingredient that she is looking for is, again, it was a mystery to me what that was going to be. And it was lovely to find out that in India, there is a whole process of creating these atars, these very heavy essential oils, these pure essential oils, uh, that is much uh, different from the sort of sterile world in which she is creating scent in a Paris lab. And so in India, what you find is that there are earthenware jugs being used. There are men who are actually putting cow patties in the fire so that you have this really clean uh, way of heating up the water for distillation. And uh, there is a lot of intuition involved in how uh, hot you're going to make that water and the oil that's coming through. Uh, There are people who have been working in this for generations, and they pass down the work uh, from father to son uh, to daughter. And uh, it, it's, it's work that really requires a lot of human interaction, which Radha was not used to in uh, the Paris lab in which she is working. And I think she finds an affinity in India for that kind of handwork, exactly what she used to do when she was growing up. Yeah, there's a real contrast between the sterility of the lab in Paris and what Radha finds when she goes back to Agra. And is, as you say, seeing what looks very ramshackle, but actually for all the the dust and the lack of sophistication produces a pure attar, exactly what she's looking for, rather than something more synthetic. And, and you suddenly realise that Paris 1974, that seems to be at the forefront of modernity, doesn't have all the answers. <laughs> oh my goodness. Wouldn't people be surprised to find that out? There Who'd was so much. <laughs> yes, exactly. There was so much that I learned in the process of writing this book. Um, one of the things I always do is I do a lot of research because I don't want people to come back and say, oh no, that's not the way it's done. And while this is a piece of fiction, the historical part of it should be uh, very accurate. So it was lovely for me to learn that there is this process in an area of India called Kanauj. And there are these uh, fragrances, these pure essential oils that have been made for thousands of years there. In fact, the fragrance companies of today still buy those pure atars from Kanauj. And and as we say, it, it is completely essential to the success of the fragrance that Radha has been commissioned to produce. And this 
scent is to celebrate and recreate and reinstate the woman who is the subject of Manet's Olympia portrait, a, a woman called Victorine, who, because she had to take her clothes off to support herself, has been written off by history as a prostitute, which, as you tell us, is rather far from the truth. Yes, uh, it turns out that Victorine was modelling because she was a very poor girl, but she was a painter in her own right. Uh, she had made it to the Paris Salon before Manet even did. But uh, our painters like Manet were very wealthy, so they could spend all of their hours painting. They didn't have to resort to being a model in order to make the rent. Uh, but she had to. And then it, that got me thinking, how many of those models had to do this because they had no money? What else did they want to do in their lives? And that got me exploring uh, in that era uh, how many of those models actually were in this sort of position. And then I thought, these women are all forgotten. I'm looking at Van Gogh's. I'm looking at uh, Cezanne's. I'm looking at Sargent. I'm looking at all of these different painters and the women who are portrayed. And I'm thinking, where did those women go? Why does nobody write about those women? The painting has been remembered. Uh, the painter has been remembered. But the model who actually made it all work uh, has been forgotten. And then I thought, oh, my goodness, wouldn't it be wonderful to have a series of scents called Remember? And mm. each one is about a different woman uh, portrayed in these paintings. You know, my, my mind just works in a weird way from everybody else's, right? I make these connections, and then I go deep into those rabbit holes. And then all of a sudden, I think, well, there's an idea that I could mine for the book. So in 1974, which is when the novel takes place, and when I went to the Jeu de Pomme for the first time to see this Manet's Olympia, that made it into the book, right? So I mm. remember what that experience was like. I was 16 years old. My parents took me to Europe. And I remember all of these very distinct things that I saw, and one of them was that painting. So I had to work it some way into, into the narrative of the perfumist of Paris. <laughs> Well, the, the whole idea of remember me and uh, bringing women who have fallen into obscurity in history back to life through their fragrance, I think is a fantastic idea. I hope you've trademarked it. Now, all three of your books centre around a time when society finds itself at an intersection between traditional and progressive values. As we said, you know, the, the Perfumist of Paris is set in 1974, when, in the West at least, women's liberation was beginning to result in greater opportunities for women. Uh, and that dynamism and that independence really found its expression in things like trouser suits and women wearing perfumes like Charlie. And Rada is trying to surf this wave herself. She's trying to be part of the success story in an industry which is dominated by men. But what's different in Rada's case is that she is determined to bring others up with her, particularly women, particularly the dispossessed. Absolutely. Rada has... A feeling, and I think it's intuitive. I don't think that she is out to uh, make a stand in women's lib. 
she is driven by her passion for her work, as I think many women are. They're just driven by that, and they don't see why they should be held back as a result. So yes, in working toward remembering all of these forgotten women, I think that Radha also is trying to say, look, we as women who have done these remarkable things should not be forgotten either. But I don't, I'm not even sure that she is aware uh, that she is doing that. Certainly not as aware as you just <laughs> as you just made that case, uh, which I think is lovely. Uh, but yes, I think that that's exactly what she's trying to do. Also, I think that as we find out the person who commissioned this project for her, uh, the project that is called Olympia for the fragrance, I think that it's interesting we find out who that is mm. and how that woman is trying to reclaim her power within this patriarchal system. Yeah, and um, we have to avoid spoilers here. But <laughs> I, th I think what, what's interesting is that Radha's determination to bring others up with her finds its first success in India, which, though a very patriarchal society, is also a place where strong women can win respect. And it's, it's also a polytheistic society where three of the most powerful deities are goddesses, the Tridevi. So it, it, it's a place where a, a strong woman can succeed. Isn't it interesting that on the one hand, you have those very strong deities uh, connected to religion, and then on the other hand, what I point out in the visits to Agra that Radha is making is that there are courtesans who also uh, have uh, enormous power within their realm. So these courtesans of India, once again, a lot of my research uh, went into this. The courtesans of India have traditionally been like geishas. They are schooled in the art of classical music, classical poetry, classical dance. And this is how they entertain their men. They were not known as common prostitutes. And then because they helped finance India's independence, both in the 1857 mutiny and also uh, in 1947, the real independence uh, that took place, because they did that, the British punished them by starting to call them common prostitutes. Mm -hmm. That really hurt, hurt their reputation. And these were women who owned a lot of property. They owned businesses. They had a lot of money. They had influence. Uh, so they are the ones who have this fragrance factory that Radha comes to know down in Agra. And uh, I love the fact that they also are a very female-centric society, these courtesans. Only their daughters inherit property and money. The boys that they have are left to their own devices once they reach the age that, that they can be turned out from the house. Uh, and these women are in charge of their own lives. The courtesans, once they have made enough money uh, of their own, they are free to leave the house uh, and buy their own houses, buy their own you know, businesses, whatever they would like to do. I found this so fascinating. I thought, oh, I've got to put this in the book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they really do have agency. And a woman's right to have agency over her own life and, and her own possessions it is right at the core of your writing, as we will explore further after this break. Share your views on the books you love with Red. 
email feedback at ami.ca, or leave a voicemail by calling 844-971-1999. Welcome back to My Life in Books, where this week my guest is Alka Joshi, author of the Jaipur Trilogy. Alka, just before the break, we were talking about women's agency in their own life. And I know you were inspired to write very much by your mother's example, particularly because she didn't really have much agency in her own life. Exactly. My mother, at the age of 18, was asked to come back from college and to get married. Her parents had found my father, who was a young engineer and very much uh, the kind of person that all parents were looking for at that time. In 1955, India, post-independence, there was a lot of rebuilding going on, a lot of energy about you know, how systems would be run, how infrastructures would be run. So engineers were a big part of that. My father was gold to my grandparents. So my mother came back home, and then within a month, they were married. Uh, And then my mother had three children in the span of four years, and her life was just never her own. She was always taking care of someone else. She did not get a chance to go back to college or to... Uh, have a career of her own. My father actually did not want her to work outside the home, very much like the patriarchs of that time. They felt that, you know, it was beneath them to have a woman who was working um, and uh, that there was some questioning of their virility, their manhood, if their wives did choose to work outside the home. So, and you can see I borrowed some of that for Radha's uh, husband yeah. in The Perfumist of Paris. Um So my mother was always, though, trying to get me, her only daughter, to have the independence that she didn't have. So with me, she would always say, honey, you're going to choose your own life. You're going to choose your own partner, your own career, your own college. Whatever you want to do in your life is your own. Just keep this one thing in mind, that you need to make sure you are financially secure before you get married. Make sure that you have something of your own so that you can always make different decisions if the first decision doesn't work out. And of course, I understood the subtext of all of that. And it did, uh, you know, encourage me to lead this very independent life. I traveled all over the world. I worked all over the world. And I learned a lot of different languages. And, uh, you know, to me, life was all about the journey that every woman has to determine her own destiny. And uh, I remember when, when I told my mother that I was uh, using Lakshmi as an alter ego for her in the very first book, The Henna Artist, she, you know, she kind of like, she smiled at me and she said, oh, okay, honey. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that she had any idea that uh, the book would become as successful as it has. And indeed, uh, three years or two years into writing the book, my mother died. So she has not been able to see any of these things. Was taking your mother to India after you had retired that actually made you realize that you could reimagine her life, that you could give her, in some ways, give her the life that she was never granted by having to give up her dreams at 18. When I was growing up in the West after the age of nine, 
I realized how many misperceptions people had about India. And mm. the West especially uh, had an idea that India was just all about poverty, all about dirt and cows running through the streets and why in the world do these people worship cows and so on. It was a very unsophisticated notion of India. Whereas the reality is that India does have a wealthy class. They have a middle class, which has grown, by the way, exponentially in the last 30 years, uh, and also a poor class. And so uh, people didn't have the advantage of understanding all of the different things that are going on in India. And for a long time, as a, a, a child and then a teenager and then a college student, I actually did not want to acknowledge that I was from India because I had become so embarrassed and so ashamed of the misperceptions that people had. So I went several decades not even thinking about going back to India or doing anything about India. It was only when I started taking my mother back to India because my younger brother had bought a condo there and said, Mom, anytime you want to come visit and say hello to your friends and family, here it is. Mm. So my mother needed, she was in her 70s and she wanted a chaperone. So I would take her back and forth. And it wasn't until I saw India through her eyes, all the things she loved about India, uh, the fruits that she couldn't get in the United States and the saris with all their colors and happiness and joy and flowers. That was when I really realized, oh my gosh, I have been missing all of this about India all this time. Why don't I, in talking about my mother's life, let people know about all the different facets of India they may not know about? And that's how the whole thing got started. And I think, you know, we can hear in your voice, your enthusiasm, even now, that, that, that sense of discovery of such a vibrant, multi-sensory life. And it really comes through in your writing. I can taste the food. I can smell the fragrances. You can almost touch the silks. And we talked earlier about how the ramshackle purity of the attars as they are made in India is infinitely more effective than the sterility of their Western counterparts. And you provide a map for so much of this with an enhanced PDF with the book where you give us recipes and you give us further explanations to Indian terms that you might use and exactly what they mean. I, I got the sense of a late love affair actually, in your life, of um, you, you fell in love with India when you saw it through your mum's eyes. <laughs> I think that is absolutely accurate. I also have to say, and I have to give a lot of kudos to my agent and my editor, because they also fell in love with the story. And uh, many of the folks in, on my publishing team have been to India, so they understand completely the scenes that I am setting up. and. What happened is that one of my, I don't know if it was my editor or my agent said, you know, why don't we put a cast of characters in? A lot of readers are going to get lost in some of these characters. So I thought, okay, here's a nod to Dickens. Why don't we put in a cast of characters? <laughs> and then, of course, uh, uh, I think it was my agent who said, you know what, let's put a glossary in the back. I said, well, I've already put the uh, foreign words in context. And she said, no, no, no. I think a lot of people are going to use the glossary. They're going to uh, rely on it. So I said, okay. So I added the glossary. And uh, I think that ultimately different members of my publishing team said, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the perfume industry, the history of it, or about henna? 
And so it became a very robust uh, PDF that encourages book clubs uh, <laughs> about the discussions that they can have uh, around the books. Absolutely. I mean, th and and that's giving back as well, isn't it? Because I know, I know you did your MFA in creative writing after you'd retired in your 50s. And you clearly have learned from other people and you want to pass your learning on to other people. And um, I don't want to be ungentlemanly by mentioning your age here, but, you know, you did only get published in, in your 60s after... After learning a new craft, after spending 10 years on this wonderful trilogy of books, and you really are quite a lesson to all of us that it, it's never too late to pursue your dreams. Isn't it lovely how many readers have contacted me and told me that? You know, they'll say, I'm in my 60s, or I'm in my 70s, or I'm in my 80s. And I didn't know that I could do something with my life in my golden years. And they're doing it. They're saying, okay, I'm going to pick up that passion that I had back when I was 30, and I didn't really have the time or the energy or the inclination to do it. Um, and so uh, that has been an amazing uh, outcome of these books that I hadn't thought about. The other thing is, I don't think I could have written these books in my 30s, 40s, or 50s. There's no way. Uh, I didn't have enough life experience. I didn't have the experience of India that I have now, that change in uh, thought about what I can teach people about India. Um, and so there is just no way I could have done this earlier. And I think it's important for people to realize sometimes in your 60s and 70s and so on, you have knowledge that has been gained over time that now you can share with people. You couldn't have done it in your 30s because you didn't know enough, but now you can. And I think that really chimes with a, a, a wonderful thing that Laxmi says to Radha in The Perfumist of Paris, which is the measure of ourselves is not what we've done in the past or what we might become in the future. It's how much we change in our lifetimes. <laughs> it's lovely that, you know, Lakshmi gets to say all the things that I would like to say to people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's why we authors create characters because we want to convey our, uh, uh, you know, uh, philosophy of life to the world. And we get to have our characters say that. And yes, I do believe that it's not just what did you do for me today or what did you do yesterday? I think it is the whole of our lives that makes us who we are. And that's the legacy that we leave behind. I think it's always something that I'm also trying to remind myself, uh, you know, that it's not just the last book I wrote. It is the totality of everything I have done in my life that's important. And you also, in the books, tackle fairly heavyweight issues as well. I'm, I'm thinking particularly in The Perfumist of Paris about adoption, which is not uncommon in India, or around the world, actually. But but it is a major issue in, in a lot of people's lives. And I know that you have received some fantastic reader feedback, which is particularly meaningful to you. I had a reader write to me just yesterday. She said that having read my book, and she's read all three, but having read The Perfumist of Paris has encouraged her to find her birth parents. I was so touched by that, and I have received a lot of readers telling me that uh, th here is my adoption story. I want you to hear my adoption story. And I think that those people who have been adopted 
or who have adopted a child out or who have been adoptive parents. Those are the three uh, legs of that particular stool. Um, those people are telling me their stories. I'm not sure they're ready to share them with the world, but they are telling me those stories. And I think that the more we can share those stories with the world, the better off we are all going to be. There is such a stigma around adoption. I don't really understand it. I myself am not adopted. I've never adopted a child out, but I can totally empathize with people who have. And when they start telling me their stories, I want to tell them, oh my gosh, you need to share this with the world because the world seems to think that, uh, you know, somehow these are throwaway children uh, that we're talking about, and they're not. And this is exactly what I wanted to say about Radha. Radha adopted a child out, but it's not because he was a throwaway child. It's just because she was too young uh, to take care of him. Now, when I go speak at uh, various conferences and festivals, as I often do, invariably somebody will come up to me and start telling me their adoption story. One of the women who did that has stayed in touch with me. And she recently wrote to me and said, okay, I read The Perfumist of Paris, and I want to thank you so much for giving the world this other side, the birth mother who had to give up her child and what that mm -hmm. did to her and what it meant to her and how she never forgot that part of her life. Uh, she said, you know, thanks for giving that side of the story, because oftentimes we women who had to give away a child are labeled as harlots or careless or irresponsible. Mm. And so uh, for me, just like I said before, how we try to imbue our characters with the kinds of messages that we want to put out into the world, I wanted to put this message out into the world saying, hey, we women, all of us deserve a seat at the table, whether or not we are married or have children or don't have children or have to give up a child or whether we remain uh, single, whatever our circumstances, we all deserve a seat at the table without judgment. And I think this is why your books have chimed with so many people around the world. And I know you've got some very, very high profile fans. I, I was reading Reese Witherspoon's glowing review of your work. And obviously, this is also translated into Netflix becoming involved in making a series of The Hen Artist. It is in development, and uh, I am just delighted that Netflix is working with my development team of uh, Michael Edelstein, uh, Frida Pinto, the actress who wants to play Lakshmi and fell in love with the book, uh, and then, of course, Miramax TV. So there are a lot of folks involved in making sure that The Henna Artist is going to be produced and realized uh, with the original intent of uh, women's empowerment and the contributions that India has made to the world and the richness of all of the sensory details that are imbued in the book. Well, I can't wait. And I also know that Netflix automatically put audio description for those of us who can't see the screen um, to be able to enjoy all their series and all their films. And of course, there is blindness in your trilogy. Laxmi and Radha's mum goes blind and you very movingly chart her descent into depression through lack of independence and also the horrible sentence that the gossip eaters, the, the local tittle-tattlers in her village 
bestow on her, saying that this is a punishment for some evil that she has committed, which unfortunately is the kind of rubbish that is all too commonly said about blind people throughout history. And I think the larger point there, of course, is that rumors really hurt people. They hurt societies. They hurt lives. And the problem is that these kinds of rumors about how someone is acting within a society are prevalent throughout the world. Throughout the world, we have societies where there is a very rigid way that one can act, and anybody outside of that is either ostracized or uh, they are badly treated in that milieu. I think what's important here is that if someone wants to uh, sort of challenge the gossip eaters, the rumor mongers, it's almost as if they have to leave that society in order to do that. And mm. I think that that is exactly what Lakshmi had to do, and it's sort of what Radha has to do too. Now, the Jaipur trilogy is a trilogy, but are you going to do an Eleanor Ferrantionis and, and write a fourth book in the trilogy? <laughs> I love the I love the parallel to Eleanor Ferrante, whose books I absolutely love. Um, I think that I might do another uh, portion of this series and uh, you know rekindle this world. I love those characters. I will never forget them. They are always with me. But my fourth and fifth books, uh, which uh, Mira books you know has bought and will be producing. Uh, my fourth book is actually dealing with 1937 in the interwar period in Europe and also in India. And don't ask me how I came up with that. It's just my mind just works that way. And all of a sudden, <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm in 1937 here. And I'm dealing with a nurse in India who has this very famous painter as a patient. The patient dies. The nurse is blamed. Uh, she then goes on a quest to figure out what might have happened in this painter's life to have caused this tragedy. And so recently, my husband and I went to Europe, and we visited all of these cities where I could talk to archivists and academicians and uh, history buffs about what was happening in 1937 in Prague, in Florence, and in Paris. Those are the three places that she's going to go. Oh, and London, and London too, at the very end of her excursion. Uh, so I don't know where these ideas come from, <laughs> I wish I could tell you. But that's what's going to happen in book number four. Well, I can't wait. But, I mean, you're going to be giving an even bigger workout to the narrator of the audiobook than Smita Maiden had reading the Jaipur trilogy. I mean, she had loads of voices to deal with from all over India and Paris and further afield. So uh, clearly you enjoy ranging far and wide. Did you enjoy the audiobook version of the Jaipur trilogy? Loved it. Oh my gosh, I loved it because Smith. Uh, so I got a chance to to select Sneha. I listened to so many audiobook versions uh, of different I Indian books, and I when I heard her voice, I said, "Oh my gosh, that is Lakshmi mm. right there." So I asked Harper Audio to please have her audition. She did. She was wonderful. She then uh, did the henna artist first, and she took us all the way to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, for audiobooks. I didn't even know there was such a category, but uh, she did. And so, of course, I had to bring her back for book number two and then uh, for The Perfumist of Paris. 
And yes, you're right. Her range is tremendous. She also knows French as well as Hindi, as well as English. So it's wonderful to be able to work with somebody who doesn't ask you how to pronounce anything because they know. <laughs> so I take it that you're also a fan of audiobooks yourself then? Yes. Don't they bring characters to life? In fact, I have a lot of readers who will have the book in hand and they are listening to the audiobook at the same time. The, what the audiobook does for them, especially with a lot of foreign words in Hindi or in French or whatever language, what the audiobook does for them is pronounce the words the way that they are reading them in the book. But they won't know exactly how to pronounce it until they hear the narrator do it. Uh, I think it just makes the experience a lot richer to be able to listen to the audiobook and maybe at the same time read the physical book. Now, I'm guessing that as an author, you are an avid reader. So I'm going to ask you to share the three books of your life with me in the audience, please. Was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become an author? I loved Jane Eyre. I just loved the story of this orphan girl who has so much uh, chutzpah <laughs> that uh, she is able to uh, rise above her plain looks and her uh, very straightened circumstances, uh, and develop this life where she she feels she deserves a better life, and she goes for it. I love that story so much. And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? Anthony Doerr's All the Light We Cannot See has to be that book. It is so complex. Uh, the two characters are very... Uh, likable, and you get engrossed in their lives. Uh, there's so much history in that book. And as you know, since I write historical fiction, I actually love reading historical fiction. Um, and I, I just think it's one of those that you can spend an afternoon reading, and it'll be very hard to put down at the end of that afternoon. And finally, is there a book you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? Pachinko by Min Jin Lee was extremely absorbing. It's four generations of South Koreans and uh, their way into Japan. Uh, I think that it's it was, first of all, very eye-opening to learn about the South Korean experience. I had no idea about their history. And then secondly, the humanity that the author is bringing out, the kind of prejudices they faced and how they overcame them and the people who helped them through those hard times. It was fascinating. Alka Joshi, thank you so much for sharing your love of reading with us today and for giving us so much additional insight into the Jaipur trilogy. I'll look forward to welcoming you back onto the show with your fourth and fifth books. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm just uh, so delighted to connect with all of my readers around the world. It's time to turn the page on this episode of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest, Alka Joshi, and to the show's producer, Sean Priest. He and I are already working on the next episode, so don't forget to join us, same time, same place, to hear another top author talking books. In the meantime, if you want to drop us a line or leaf through our back catalogue, here's how. Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 
Hi, I'm Stephen Scott. Join me every day for Double Tap. It's a show where we occasionally talk about technology for blind and partially sighted people. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts.